welcome to this episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast, where I am speaking into my germ-infested, most likely uh, COVID-infected microphone. No, not really. Uh, I don't have COVID. I don't know if any, I don't think anybody has ever been in here that has COVID. Um, So I really don't have COVID, and I don't think my microphone has COVID. I just said that because when I got in here, my microphone was on the floor, and I blame the cats. I don't know about you, but I mean, I wasn't here, and I came in, and my microphone was on the floor. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's all good. Works real good. See? I don't know if you could hear that or not, but that was me hitting my microphone. It works just fine. But apparently, uh, one of the cats was walking on my desk or something and knocked it over. Normally, I put it away. I you know, I, I take everything down. I put it away really good and everything. But I kind of left in a hurry, and I just wasn't thinking, and I left it out. And they demonstrated to me why I should put it away whenever I do, because it was on the ground. So it's been on the floor, and so it's... Uh, Got all kinds of nasty germs on it and everything else. Maybe I should put a mask on it, you know? Maybe I should put a mask on my microphone. I'm not going to wear a mask. I do have a, I do have one of those, what they call fake mask. If you go to like Fake Mask USA, I think it's called or whatever. You get one of those little nylon things that like, it's just like a thin, thin little nothing. I mean, you can, you can like see your face through it and everything. It, it's literally nothing. Like, it's like this mesh that is just so, it's so ridiculously unhelpful just like in in much the same way it's it's just as ridiculously non-helpful as like the actual masks that people wear except this one is obvious so like you put this thing on your face and you can see right through it like it's so plainly obvious that you're just trolling people with it and that's what that's what it is that's the only reason i got it because it's a troll it's meant to shamelessly it's shamelessly mock people who do take the mask seriously and so that's why i have such a thing but maybe you know so maybe i should put that or something else over my microphone you know rush limbaugh back in the 80s when he was doing the rush to excellence tour he used to put uh condoms on his microphone and he would call it safe talk and you know he put the condom over the microphone and he would say you're according to the surgeon general you are now kept safe from any dangerous dangerous speak or dangerous talk that will now be uttered from my lips and you know and that was his whole thing about safe talk having a condom over the microphone um (laughs) so maybe i mean that that's kind of over with now because this isn't the 80s or the 90s anymore this is now 2021 now we're going nuts over masks so maybe i should get a mask don't ginger don't do that you know better than that uh, maybe I should get a mask for my microphone and just slide it right on over there and, uh, you know, maybe use the strings to tie it on so it doesn't fall off, you know, and I could just talk into my mask-covered microphone. And uh, I don't know. We'll see if I do that or not. But, but it really doesn't matter now because I'm already talking into it as we speak or as I speak because I'm the only one speaking. And uh, so it's probably too late I've probably because I'm talking into it and I'm definitely not six feet from my microphone so I'm not social distancing so whatever was on my microphone that's going to kill me 
it probably already is in the process of doing so. So yeah, I'm just I'm basically just a dead man rolling. I'm just just waiting on it to to finish me off, whatever it is. Maybe I'll be dead before the podcast is over. Who knows? <laughs> um, so anyway, welcome to the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson. It's good to be with you today. Talking to you from my germ, COVID-infested, not uh, my maskless microphone. Uh, my, uh, if you want to get in touch with me to discuss things you like about this podcast, things you don't like about this podcast, such as me endangering your health by talking into a maskless microphone, or um, I don't know, uh, if you have any. Um, objections, comments, praises, uh, whatever, anything good, bad, and different, terrible ideas that you want me to talk about, whatever, any uh, constructive criticism, no destructive criticism. Destructive criticism will get you completely ignored because you are a terrible person. No, I'm just kidding. Not really. Uh, well, you could be a terrible person. I don't know. But if, if you are a terrible person, hide it and only give me constructive criticism. If you have any constructive criticism or anything else that you think might be helpful or just something that you would be interested in me talking about or discussing, you can reach out to me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that would be wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. By the way, did you know that according to Twitter, I am a racist? Yes, yes, it has been declared so by the Twitter trolls. Apparently, I have been deemed a racist by some people who have very little following on Twitter, but think somehow that their opinion means the world to me enough to... Turn some light on here. Uh, enough to declare me a racist as if I am supposed to care about their little opinions. Um... And we'll get into why, first of all, as Jeffy on the blaze likes to say, first of all, uh, hang on one second here, let me uh, pull up this little Twitter thread, oh my gosh, the tweet, the replies are still coming in, good grief, how long is this going to go on? So let's first of all talk about what started this whole thing in the first place, otherwise when I read these comments and replies to you, they will make zero sense. So let me pull that up real quick and we will talk about what got the ball rolling on this whole thing about me being falsely declared a racist by a bunch of people that include their pronouns in their Twitter names. Okay, so here's what got all this started. Uh, Josh McDowell was speaking at the blah, 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 let's see what the heck is the name of this thing. The American, hold on, hang on one minute, let me, hang on, I'm trying not to play this clip. The American Association of Christian Counselors Conference is what he, and this was on September 18th where he said this. I would just play the clip, but I don't know, again, I don't want to get I don't want to get the copyright folks ticked off and have a fit. Although this was just recorded from somebody's thing. 
on Twitter, so it wasn't like it. I don't think this is copyrighted. I'll, I'll go ahead and just play the audio, and then I will. Uh, if you, and then I'll I'll play the audio first, and then I'll go through the quote a little bit at a time, and then we will discuss what was said. Hang on, one. Let's pull this up here, and here we go. Okay, three, two, one, boom. It's not just the equal opportunity, and I don't believe. Everybody says, well, blacks, whites, everyone have the equal opportunity to make it in America. No, they don't, folks. I do not believe blacks, African Americans, and many of the minorities have equal opportunity. Why? Most of them grow up in families where there's not a big emphasis on education, security. You can do anything you want. You can change the world. If you work hard, you will make it. So many African Americans don't have those privileges like I was brought up with. My folks were very rich back they were a poor farming family. But the way I was raised, I had advantages in life. Ingrained into me, you can do it. Get your education. Get a job. Change the world. And that makes it in different opportunities. Okay, first of all, um, I would just like to state with this that, well, I don't want to... Let me hang on just a minute before I do that. So, for those of you that couldn't hear that, I'm assuming everybody could, but just in case, let me now read the quote. It says here, just so I wanted to play it first so you'd know that I wasn't taking anything out of context or that I was leaving part of it out. Now, here's the, I'm going to read it again. Here's the quote from Josh McDowell. Here's word for word what he said. I'm not going to interrupt and do any commentary yet on it. I'm just going to read the quote to you as he said it. He, he says, Everybody says blacks, whites, everybody has equal opportunity in, to make it in America. No, they don't, folks. I do not believe blacks, African Americans, or other minorities have equal opportunities. Why? Most of them grow up in families where there is not a great emphasis on education sec security. You can do anything you want. You can change the world. If you work hard, you will make it. So many African Americans don't have these privileges like I did. My folks weren't very rich. In fact, they were a poor farming family. But the way I was raised, I had advantages in life ingrained into me. You can do it. Get your education. Get a job. Change the world. And that makes different opportunities. Okay. So, that is what he said. And then a bunch of people had a fit. And they, this was just, um, people just had a, a real conniption over this and started claiming that he made a, a racist statement and started demanding his, this was, this conference was in Orlando. And so then this article here, what is, what is this? I don't even know the name of this website. I'm trying to find it. This Warren Throckmorton, no idea what that is. Uh, college psychology professor's observations. Okay, whatever. So I don't know this website from 
whatever, but uh, I just wanted to give credit to the person that did this. It says, just days after Josh McDowell created of Firestorm, this guy's a college professor. Anyway, let me start over here. Just days after Josh McDowell created of Firestorm over comments about black and minority families at the, Afro at the American Association of Christian Counselors Conference in Orlando, Florida. I don't really know that that is even worded properly, but that's okay. He announced a pause from his ministry. This announcement came on Twitter earlier today. So this is a bunch of people had a conniption fit over what he said because it's 2021 and everything is racist. And here's what Josh McDowell said in his apology after the, sta after the statement that I just played for you. He said, at a recent conference, I made comments about race, the black family, and minorities that were wrong and hurt many people. It breaks my heart to know what deep pain I have caused. It has become clear to me, along with, along with crew leadership that used to be Campus Crusade for Christ, that I need to step back from my ministry and speaking engagements to enter a season of listening and addressing the growth areas that I have become aware of through this. Oh, during this time of meeting with others and a meeting with others and learning, I hope to personally grow and better understand how I can help contribute to the reconciliation and unity that God desires for us all. During this season, Josh McDowell Ministry will continue in its mission with CEO Dwayne Zook leading all daily efforts. That was on September 22nd. I believe that was four days after his initial comments. Okay, so before we get into the whole part about me being called a racist by a bunch of Twitter trolls, uh, which, which basically probably a bunch of... Uh, well, never mind. I don't, I don't want to say that. But uh, anyway, so here we go. This was not racist, okay? There was nothing racist about these comments. I don't think there was anything insensitive about these comments. Matter of fact, I think the comments were true as they were intended. So let's let's take a look at this quote and break it down. It says here, uh, let's start at the top. Everybody says blacks, whites have equal opportunity to make it in America. No, they don't, folks. I don't believe blacks, African-Americans, or other minorities have equal opportunities. Why? Most of them grew up in families where there's not a great emphasis on education and security. Okay, stop right there. Technically, I would say that that first part of the statement is incorrect if you just look at the word for word, not what's intended, but if you just look at it as it's worded. He said, I don't believe that everybody has equal opportunity in America. As it was, as the ideals were stated at our founding, in other words, what the American experiment was intended to be by the people that started this whole thing, the, the founders. I disagree with the statement that equal opportunity is 
not possible in America. Or at least, let me put it this way. Equal opportunity, at least until everything became woke, is or was more possible in this country than it has been anywhere else at any time in world history. We fought a civil war to end slavery. The, a lot of the original founding fathers were abolitionists who fought to end slavery. And unfortunately, part of the problem with American education is we're being students today and even, even back when I was going to school, but it's been kicked into overdrive today, are being brainwashed into thinking that the founders were a bunch of racist bigots who just, they never saw something pro-slavery that just didn't get them all hot and bothered. And that's not true. That's not, and get them all, you know, like, they saw the word slavery and they just, they just couldn't help themselves. They broke out into sweats because they were so excited. That's not the case at all. <laughs> but if you listen to things like the 1619 Project and most of the crap being spewed on in American media today, that's what you're being told. Hey, even, even our uh, national archives are now slapping warning labels online on our founding documents talking about the the potentially triggering and outdated language in our founding documents. Well, that's, I mean, and these are the people that are supposed to be the keepers of our historical heritage, of what, what makes our country our country, what makes America America. They're supposed, the foundations the, the foundational documents that made our country what it is, they're supposed to be the gatekeepers of that. And now they have been corrupted and they have, now they're part of this woke movement that says that America's founding documents are outdated and outdated cultural references could be potentially triggering, harmful. I don't think they actually use the word racist, but that's that's the clear connotation from what they're getting at. And this is just, I mean, if the National Archives are doing this, this is not just some fringe people that are making stupid statements on a university campus like it used to be. This has gotten out. Of, this has broken out of the university campuses and is effect is infecting our entire society in much the same way COVID broke out of a Wuhan lab and spread around the world. That's basically what's happening with this dangerous ideology that has been confined mostly to college campuses and the view for a long time and and now all of a sudden it's it's infecting our institutions at the highest levels but america was founded as a place where equal opportunity 
could happen. And from the very beginning, that is what was sought. Has it always been perfect? No. Again, we had to fight a civil war over slavery. But the only reason why slavery was even permitted in the first place is because they want is because we needed to preserve not preserve the union we need in order for the southern states to go along which is where slavery was being promoted for the most part still that there needed to be a temporary compromise everybody talks about the three-fifths clause that said that blacks were three-fifths three-fifths of a person and see that's evidence of america's racism actually it's just the opposite it's evidence of the fact that America was seeking to end racism and end slavery. Because what the southern states wanted, the, the, the pro-slavery southern states, what they wanted was they wanted slavery. They wanted to have black people counted as slaves. But, and, and therefore to be considered property. Right? So they have no human rights. They have no basic human rights. They're no different than your house or your land or whatever. Or whatever, you, you know, any, any other property. No different than any other inanimate object. They're just, they're just property. Right? But they still wanted them counted as people when it came to representation in Congress. So they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Because the House of Representatives, the number of representatives your state has in Washington is based on your population size. Now, the Senate, it's equal. Every state gets two senators, according to the Constitution. Every state gets two senators. But in the House of Representatives, it's not equal. It's based on population size. So, for example, California has a lot more representatives than Rhode Island because California is our largest state and Rhode Island is our smallest, right? So, that's how rep congressional representation in the House is determined by population size. So, the southern states wanted to have black people, their black slaves, counted as human beings when their congressional representation was determined. But in all other ways, they wanted them counted not as human, but as property. That way, they could have super majorities in the House of Representatives, and there would never be any progress made from a lawmaking standpoint federally in the attempts to abolish the slave trade and to give equal rights to black people in America. So the free states, the, or the people that wanted free states said, no, you know, if, if you're not gonna, if you, if you're not gonna count them as people and give them all the human rights that go along with being a person, then you can't count them at all. And the southern states said, well, if we can't count them at all, then we're not signing on to this American experiment. We're not, we're not joining ourselves to this. And we needed them. So the three-fifths thing was the compromise. We counted in three-fifths of a person. That way they couldn't get the full benefits of counting 
their slaves as people so that they could increase their pro their pro-slavery representation in Congress. And at the same time, they would still get some benefit from that so that they would join the Union and then we could form uh, the, the, the 13 colonies could become 13 states that are united in this struggle against tyranny from Great Britain. So let us all unite together to fight this common enemy and we can, we can hash out this slavery thing later. And boy, did we. <laughs> Not even 100 years later. And a bunch of other things led up to that. But, so that's... That's one thing about the 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 racist the the quote unquote racist history of America, that is not true. Uh, three fifths of a person that proves America's racist. No, you, you just don't know your history. It was actually a compromise done by pro-slavery and anti-slavery Americans to get them on the same page for the time being, and then we would hash that out later. So that's one thing. But, and then so for a time did, getting back to the Josh McDowell comment, so for a time did Americans not have, did, did blacks in America not have equal rights or equal opportunity? Yes, that is true, especially in certain states, in certain colonies, or in certain, yeah, in certain states. But, that was not the prevailing attitude of most of our founders. It just wasn't. And that can be proven if you go back to original documentation. So you guys know I've been reading from some, wall, some of the stuff from wall builders lately and talking about uh, American history and the... Um, and the Christian Heritage Week thing that they did. I've, I've opened some of my, I think my last two or three podcasts reading some of that. And now my phone's ringing at the worst possible time. Who could be doing that, of course? It's always the same person. Hang on one minute. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I'm continuing on where I left off as if that's going to be possible. Uh, I, this always happens to me. See, I... I I forget to put my phone on Do Not Disturb, and I still didn't put it on there, so we'll see if it rings again just for kicks. Um, but I, I put this on, I, I don't put the phone on Do Not Disturb, and then it rings, and then I pause it. Last time somebody called me during one of these, I paused it, and then I, did, I wasn't able to continue recording the podcast until like the next day, so it was like over 24 hours. This time it's only been a few minutes, but I always end up losing my place and what I was trying to say. Whenever I get interrupted and have to pause the recording, I should have just left it. I should have just left it continuing to record, but there was some personal stuff said there and it might not be appreciated if I would have done that. So, so I won't. But uh, anyway, slavery and the American founders. American founders were not racist, and I think the last thing I said was something like in original documentation and quotes from the time and other things, their actions and whatnot can demonstrate that. And I talked about how I'd been doing things from Christian Heritage Week with wall builders over the last couple of podcasts, and I just want to continue 
but something, well, not from that specific document, but something else that they did called the Founding Fathers and Slavery as part, as part of my explanation as to why this Josh McDowell quote is not racist. He, but he starts off by saying that there's not equal opportunity in America. I would argue that maybe that's the case today, but I don't think it's, but I think it's because of the woke ideology and the reverse racism that has now been or that's attempting to be perpetrated on our country and then how we're revising history to make our former heroes look like villains as a nation. But this article here from Wall Builders, The Founding Fathers and Slavery, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it goes on for a long time, but I'm just going to read parts of it. It says, even though the issue of slavery is often raised as a discrediting charge against the Founding Fathers, the historical fact is that slavery was not the product of, nor was it an evil produced, or excuse me, introduced by the Founding Fathers. And hold on, I'm getting old, so I've got to zoom in a little bit so I can read this better. Slavery had been introduced to America nearly two centuries before the founders. As President of Congress Henry Lawrence explained, he said, I abhor slavery. I was born in a country where slavery had been established by British kings and parliaments, as well as by the laws of the country ages before my existence. In former days, there was no combating the prejudices of men supported by interest. The day, I hope, is approaching when, from principles of gratitude as well as justice, every man will strive to be foremost in showing his readiness to comply with the golden rule. And the golden rule comes from Matthew seven twelve, which in the King James says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And again, that was, uh, let's see, it says here, prior to the time of the Founding Fathers, there had, been very, there, there had been few serious efforts to dismantle the institution of slavery. John Jay identified the point at which the change in attitudes toward slavery began. John Jay said, prior to the Great Revolution, meaning the American Revolution, the great majority of our people had been so long accustomed to the practice and convenience of having slaves that very few among them even doubted the propriety and rectitude of it. The American Revolution was the turning point in the national attitude, and it was the Founding Fathers who contributed greatly to that change. In fact, many of the Founders vigorously complained against the fact that the Great Britain had forcefully imposed upon the colonies the evil of slavery. For example, Thomas Jefferson heavily criticized that British policy. He said, King George III has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life, liberty in the per life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. 
Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this exorable commerce. That is, he has opposed efforts to prohibit the slave trade. Benjamin Franklin, in a 1773 letter to Dean Woodward, confirmed that wherever the Americans had attempted to end slavery, the British government had indeed thwarted those attempts. Franklin explained that a disposition to abolish slavery prevails in North America, that many of Pennsylvanians have set their slaves at liberty, and that even the Virginia Assembly have prohibited the king for have, excuse me, prohibited, have petitioned the king for permission to make a law for preventing the importation of more into that colony. This request, however, will probably not be granted, as their former laws of that kind have always been repealed. Further confirmation that even the Virginia founders were not responsible for slavery, but actually tried to dismantle the institution, was provided by John Quincy Adams, who was known as the great hellhound of abolition for his extensive efforts against that evil. Adams explained, The inconsistency of the institution of domestic slavery with the principles of the Declaration of Independence was seen and lamented by all the southern patriots of the Revolution, by no one with deeper and more unalterable conviction than by, the, than by the author of the declaration of himself, Thomas Jefferson. No charge of insincerity or hypocrisy can be fairly laid to their charge. And this is, this is important because this is what a lot of people do today. They, they claim that the founders were a bunch of hypocrites because the ones that are even aware of all their anti-slavery pronouncements will say that, see, they were hypocrites. They campaigned against slavery all the while they owned slaves. But John Quincy Adams said that it, no charge of insincerity or hypocrisy can be fairly laid to their charge. Never from their lips was heard one syllable of attempt to justify the institution of slavery. They universally considered it as a reproach fastened upon them by the unnatural stepmother country, Great Britain. And they saw that before the principles of the Declaration of Independence, slavery, in common with every other mode of oppression, was destined sooner or later to be banished from the earth. Such was the undoubting conviction of Jefferson to his dying day. In the memoir of his life, written at the age of 77, he gave to his countrymen the solemn and emphatic warning that the day was not distant, when they must hear and adopt the general, the, the general emancipation of their slaves. While Jefferson himself had introduced a bill to end slavery, not all of the Southern founders were opposed to slavery. According to the testimony of, Virgin, of Virginia's James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, it was the founders from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia who most strongly favored slavery. As I spill soft drink on myself, because I'm smart like that. Anyway, 
Yet despite the support for slavery in those states, the clear majority of the founders opposed this evil. For instance, when some of the southern pro-slavery advocates invoked the Bible in support of slavery, Elias Boudinot, president of the Continental Congress, responded, Even the sacred scriptures had been quoted to justify this iniquitous traffic. It is true that the Egyptians held the Israelites in bondage for 400 years, but gentlemen cannot forget the consequences that followed. They were delivered by a strong hand and stretched out arm, and it ought to be remembered that the almighty power that accomplished their deliverance is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of course, that is a reference to Hebrews 13.8, I believe, which talks about Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Many of the Founding Fathers who had owned slaves as British citizens released them in the years following America's separation from Great Britain. Let me read that again, because this is another charge. Look at all these guys that said they opposed slavery, let they all, yet they all owned slaves. Let me read this again. Many of the Founding Fathers who had owned slaves as British citizens released them in the years following America's separation from Great Britain. This included George Washington, John Dickinson, Caesar Rodney, William Livingston, George Wythe, John Randolph of Roanoke, and others. Furthermore, many of the founders had never owned any slaves. For example, John Adams proclaimed, My opinion against it, slavery, has always been known. Never in my life did I own a slave. Notice a few additional examples of the strong anti-slavery sentiments held by great numbers of the founders. John Adams, who was signer of the Declaration, one of only two signers of the Bill of Rights, and a former U.S. president, said, Never in my life did I own a slave. I just read that. Samuel Adams, signer of the Declaration and father of the American Revolution, said, But to the eye of reason, what can be more clear than that all men have an equal right to happiness? Nature made no other distinction from that of higher or lower degrees of power of mind and body, were the talents and virtues which heaven has bestowed upon men given merely to make them more obedient, more obedient drudges? No. In the judgment of heaven there is no other superiority among men than a superiority of wisdom and virtue. Charles Carroll, signer of the Declaration, said, Why keep alive the question of slavery? It is admitted by all to be a great evil. John Dickinson, signer of the Constitution and governor of Pennsylvania, said, As Congress is now to legislate for our extensive territory lately acquired, I pray to heaven that they may build up the system of the government on the broad, strong, and sound principles of freedom. Curse not the inhabitants of those regions and of the United States in general, with a permission to introduce bondage or slavery. Benjamin Franklin, signer of the Declaration, signer of the Constitution, president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, said, I am glad to hear, excuse me, I am glad to hear that the disposition against keeping Negroes grows more general in North America 
Several places have been lately printed, several pieces have been lately printed here against the practice, and I hope in time it will be taken into consideration and suppressed by the legislature. Benjamin Franklin again. He said, That mankind are all formed by the same almighty being, alike objects of his... Oh, excuse me, let me let me start that again. That mankind are all formed by the same almighty being, alike, alike objects of his care, and equally designed for the enjoyment, enjoyment of happiness. That's all, folks. The Christian religion teaches us to believe, and the political creed of Americans fully concedes, coincides with the position. We earnestly entreat your serious attention to the subject of slavery that you will be pleased to countenance the restoration of liberty to those unhappy men who alone in this land of freedom are degraded into perpetual bondage and who are groaning in servile subjection. Benjamin Franklin wasn't even a Christian, and he acknowledged both America's founding documents and the Bible itself were opposed to this practice as it was being perpetrated in America. John Jay, President of, Con of the Continental Congress and the original Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court said that men should pray and fight for their own freedom and yet keep others in slavery is certainly acting a very, a very inconsistent as well as unjust and perhaps impious part. And these quotes go on and on. There's, uh, I mean... 8, 9, 10, like 12 more comments here. 12 more quotes from different founders. For many of the founders, their feelings against slavery went beyond words. For example, in 1774, Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush founded America's first anti-slavery society. John Jay was president of a similar society in New York. In fact, when signer of the Constitution William Livingston heard of the New York Society, he, as governor of New Jersey, wrote them, offering, I would most ardently wish to become a member of it, meaning the Society of New York, and I can safely promise them that neither my tongue, nor my pen, nor purse shall be wanting to promote the abolition of what, appear, of what to me appears so inconsistent with the humanity and Christianity. May the great and the equal father of the human race who has expressly declared his abhorrence of oppression and that he is no respecter of persons succeed a design so laudably, so laudably calculated to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Other prominent founding fathers who were members of societies for ending slavery included Richard Bassett, James Madison, James Monroe, Bushrod Washington, Charles Carroll, William Few, John Marshall, Richard Stockton, Zephaniah Swift, and many more. In fact, based in part on the efforts of these founders, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts began abolishing slavery in 1780. That was... 80 years before the Civil War. 30 Connecticut... Uh, uh, hang on one second. 
Let's, let's start that again. Um, yeah, so Pennsylvania and Massachusetts began abolishing slavery in 1780. Connecticut and Rhode Island did so in 1784. Vermont in 1786. New Hampshire in 1792. New York in 1799. And New Jersey did so in 1804. Additionally, the reason that Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa all prohibited slavery was a congressional act authored by Constitution signer Rufus King and signed into law by President George Washington, which prohibited slavery in those territories. It is not surprising that Washington would sign such a law, for it was he who had declared, I can only say that there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I, than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. The truth is that it was the Founding Fathers who were responsible for planting and nurturing the first seeds of the recognition of black equality and for the eventual end of slavery. This was a fact made clear by Richard Allen. Allen had been a slave in Pennsylvania, but was freed after he converted his master to Christianity. Allen, a close friend of Benjamin Rush and several other Founding Fathers, went on to become the founder of the AME Church in America. In an early address to the people of color, it was his quote, in an, early in an early address quote to the people of color, unquote, he explained, many of the white people have been instruments in the hands of God for our good, even such as, even such as have held us in captivity and are now pleading our cause with earnestness and zeal. While much progress was made by the founders to end the institution of slavery, unfortunately, what they began was not fully achieved until generations later. Yet despite the strenuous effort of many founders to recognize in practice that all men are created equal, charges persist to the opposite. In fact, revisionists even claim today that the Constitution demonstrates that the founders considered one who was black to be only three-fifths of a person. This is what I talked about already. This charge is yet another falsehood. The three-fifths clause was not a measurement of human worth. Rather, it was an anti-slavery provision to limit the political, the political power of slavery proponents. By including only three-fifths of the total number of slaves in the congressional calculations, Southern states were actually being denied additional pro-slavery representatives in Congress. That's literally what I just said before I started reading this. Based on the clear records of the Constitutional Convention, two prominent professors explained the meaning of the three-fifths clause. I'm not going to read all this again because I basically already explained this to you. So why do revisionists so often abuse and misportray the Three-Fifths Clause? Professor Walter Williams, who is himself an African-American, suggested, Politicians, news media, and college professors, and leftists of other stripes, are selling us lies and propaganda to lay the groundwork for their increasingly successful attack on our Constitution. They must demean and criticize its authors. As Senator Joe Biden, who's our current <clears throat> president, <clears throat> uh, let me, <laughs> um, as Senator Joe Biden demonstrated during the Clarence Thomas hearings, 
the framers' ideas about natural law must be trivialized or they must be seen as racist. While this has been only a cursory examination of the founders in slavery, it is nonetheless sufficient to demonstrate the absurdity of the insinuation that the founders were a collective group of racists. So, the founding fathers were not racist. So, taking Josh McDowell's words just on the surface that blacks don't have equal opportunity to make it in America, our founders, our founding documents, would especially dictate otherwise. Several efforts were made, as we just saw from what I read, to abolish slavery many times before the Civil War ever took place. In fact, there were only three states out of the original 13 that really demanded slavery, that were really pro-slavery, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. They were the main ones that were holding to this so strongly and gumming up the works for the Constitution to be ratified. But, all that being said, what does Josh McDowell mean when he says, I don't believe, black, I don't believe blacks, African Americans, or other minorities have equal opportunities? Here's what he meant when he said that. He, he clarifies this, and I'm glad he did. He said, most of them, meaning black Americans, grew up in families where there is not a great emphasis on education and security. You can do anything you want. This is the encouragement part. This is what gets me about this. This was meant to be a positive message. This was meant to be an encouraging message for black Americans. This was meant to be an uplifting comment. This was, that's what this was intended to be. This was not meant to be hurtful. And it wasn't that long ago before everybody lost their, their minds. It wasn't that long ago that this would have been seen for what it is. An uplifting encouragement. Yes, you can do anything. Don't let anybody hold you back. Don't let anybody tell you you're not capable, or you're not able, or that you're not good enough, or that you're inferior, or that you just can't make it, or that you're too, you've been too oppressed. Don't let anybody tell you that. You can do whatever you want. At one time, not even that long ago, not even five years ago maybe, in a lot of places, this still would have been celebrated as a, as a positive this would have been held up as, yes, right on, standing ovation. This was meant to be a positive thing. Listen to this. You can do anything you want. You can change the world. If you work hard, you will make it. So and so, and then he continues. He says, so many African Americans don't have those privileges like I did. Now, he's not, he's not claiming here white privilege as it is being promoted by these, trying to be careful here, by these imbeciles. I can't even call them imbeciles because they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. They're purposely, they're historical revisionists that are purposely distorting our history because they don't like our Constitution and they want to overthrow 
the rights and the rights of the people and everything that makes America what it is because they want to remake it and they're doing and just like that quote from that professor talked about in the article that I read from Wall Builders this is an attack on our constitution and our way of life from within that's what this is and they're using they're playing the race card and they're distorting comments like this and distorting the founders and distorting American history to attack those of us who would point back to American history or to point to American ideals that are rooted in our history when we try to defend the principles that made the country what it is. That's what all this is. There's nothing racist about this. And I dare say that most of the people who complain about this stuff know it. But that's not their that's not their goal. That's not what they're really all about is, you know, equality and all that. Equity and equality are two very different things. <laughs> equity is racist. Equality is not. You can do anything you want, Judge McDowell said. You can change the world. If you work hard, you will make it. So many African Americans don't have those privileges like I did. My folks weren't very rich. In fact, they were a poor farming family. But the way I was raised, I had, I had advantages in life ingrained into me. So again, he's not saying I had white privilege. He's saying that because of the principles that my parents taught me, because of the principles that I grew up with, the way I was raised, I had advantage of life ingrained into me. You can do it. Get your education, get a job, change the world, and that makes different opportunities. So he's saying that because of the values that were instilled into him, it gave him advantages that he might not have otherwise had. That's what he's saying here. But everybody, at least everybody, all the trolls on Twitter, jumped on this one thing. I don't believe blacks, African Americans, or other minorities have equal opportunities. First of all, why are they even complaining? Because aren't they saying the very same thing? They're saying, they're claiming the very same thing. Well, America is not equal. We don't have equality. The equality America proclaims is a falsehood. They're claiming all these very things. So why are they upset at him for saying it? Because it's not real. Because it's fake. It's false. It's, it's manufactured outrage. Designed to bully and to intimidate and to cause the very reaction that Josh McDowell bowed the knee to and submitted to them. But is it true that blacks, African Americans don't have equal opportunities because there is not a great emphasis on education? Well, let's look into that. Actually, we don't even know, need to look any farther than Ben Carson's story, Dr. Ben Carson. He um, he said that he said before he said both of my older cousins died on the streets where I lived. Carson wrote about this 
hard-scrabbled Detroit childhood in a USA Today editorial. He said, I thought that was my destiny, but my mother didn't. She changed all of that. She saved my brother and me from being killed on those streets with nothing but a library card. So Ben Carson saying here, look, uh, all the people in the neighborhood where I grew up, they were on the road to continuing the same, down the path of the same terrible, horrible conditions and the same mistakes and bad choices of the past that had been made. But my mother didn't permit that. She saved us with a library card. What's he essentially saying? He's saying by emphasizing education, by emphasizing the what you know what can you do for yourself kind of mentality his mother did not permit him to just go oh well poor me she made sure that they took advantages of all the opportunities that america gave and that's essentially, that's exactly what Josh McDowell said here in this quote. So, I mean, and Ben Carson was right, and so was Josh McDowell. Ben Carson went from fatherless black child living in poverty to groundbreaking neurosurgeon to high-profile presidential candidate. And he even became part of the Trump administration. I mean, the, it, that's a perfect example of what he's talking about. And he's saying, you know, because my mother emphasized education and didn't let us get by without one, that's what made me what I am today. And that's all Josh McDowell was saying. There was not a, not a racist syllable anywhere in that quote. There's nothing hurtful, nothing, nothing like that at all. And for these morons to, to claim otherwise, it, it's, again, it's not, it's, I shouldn't say morons because it's not moronic. It's intentional, purposeful misrepresentation to bully someone into silence or bully someone into, into, Submission is basically what all this is, all this reaction to what Josh McDowell said. And I have a needy cat that wants on my lap. Isn't there my galaxy? You want on my lap, galaxy, huh? You pretty cat? You just have to get on my lap all the time, huh? This cat, I tell you, earlier I was using the toilet. I was sitting on the toilet, and she jumps up in my lap while I'm on the toilet and curls up in my lap. I'm trying to do something here. Why you, you know. Anyway. Um, achievement, get, uh, this thing here, about five years ago, a report was done showing the achievement gap between black and white students. Looking at the results. Again, if you just look at the facts, take the emotion out of it, take your knee-jerk reaction out of it, take all the, oh, I can't believe you said that, the fake outrage... And let's look at the real statistical analysis 
of achievement and tell me then if you look at this with an open mind that Josh McDowell or Ben Carson or anybody else who says anything like this is wrong. From U.S. News 2016, written by Lauren Camara, January 13, 2016. It says, the achievement gap between white students and black students has barely narrowed over the last 50 years, despite nearly half a century of supposed progress in race relations and an increased emphasis on closing such academic discrepancies between groups of students. That's the finding that a new analysis of a landmark education report calls a national embarrassment. I guess the report is racist too, right? The finding is part of a series from Education Next, commemorating the 50th anniversary of Equality of Education Opportunity, also known as the Coleman Report, a breakthrough report on education equity written by James Coleman, then a sociologist at Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. The report was mandated by the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which tasked the Department of Education with examining the inequality of educational opportunities in elementary and secondary education across the U.S., and especially in the South, to gauge the differences between schools attended by white students and black students. So all these words that Josh McDowell used were just included in this whole point about what this report was meant to do. I talked about inequality, lack of opportunity, and how to improve it. That's all he said. And he's somehow a racist. The Coleman Report found, among many other things, that in both math and reading, the average black student in grade 12 placed in the 13th percentile of the score distribution, meaning that 87% of white students in grade 12 scored ahead of the average black 12th grader. Is that because blacks are incapable? No. It's because of the very things that Ben Carson talked about and the very things that Josh McDowell tried to espouse in that one small quote. That's what he was trying to get across. It's the lack of emphasis on education because the emphasis is on oppression especially now, even in the school system. Oh, you're oppressed. Oh, you're, you know, uh, 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 systemic racism, white supremacy. All of those are, it's easier to claim systemic racism and white supremacy than it is to say, okay, well, even if that's true, which, for the most part, it's no longer true, even though it once was. But even if this is true, nobody's going to be able to change this but me. So I've got to do my part. But 50 years later, that gap has barely narrowed. The average 12th grade black student, According to data from the 2013 National Assessment for Educational Progress, I realize this is eight years old now, but this is just one of, the, one of the first things I could find to demonstrate what I'm talking about. 
The average 12th grade black student, according to data from the 2013 National Assessment for Educational Progress, placed only in the 19th percentile. In reading, the achievement gap has improved slightly more than in math, but after a half a century, the average black student scores at just the 22nd percentile. The largest gains in both math and reading, get this, I love this part, the largest gains in both math and reading were found in the southern states. The uh, more conservative ones. <clears throat> um, excuse me. Where the larger gaps observed in 1965 were brought in line with the rest of the nation by 2013. Generally, however, there was slow improvement in much of the rest of the country, including an expanded reading gap in the Midwest. It is estimated that if the achievement gaps continue close at continue continue to close at such an incremental rate, it will be roughly two and a half centuries before the black-white math gap closes, and over one and a half centuries until the reading gap closes. So. Oh, oh no, I was going to stop there, but I allowed my eyes to keep going. So I'm going to keep reading this because there's, there's some important things here. What's more, the achievement disparities across races and regions were one of the most overlooked, overlooked findings tucked into the 700-plus pay, page report, something that seems inconceivable in a world where today's policymakers and politicians are obsessed with outcomes. What happened after the release of the Coleman Report is that all of the attention went to the role families and schools played in achievement, at the time a very novel idea, and, and one that's had lasting impact. It seems difficult to imagine a report that found the average black 12th grader in the rural South registered an achievement that was comparable to that of a white 7th grader in the urban Northeast not making headlines. But that's precisely what the Coleman Report found, and that gap and others never received attention. So, how many of you had never even heard of that report, much less its findings? I hadn't. But again, this demonstrates exactly what Josh McDowell was trying to say. He was not trying to be racist. He was not saying... Not only was he not trying to be racist, he wasn't racist. He wasn't saying anything that was racist. He wasn't saying, uh, I'm privileged and you're inferior. He was saying this, the same thing Ben Carson was saying. The same thing I'm trying to get across now. Education is not emphasized because... What is emphasized in the media, in popular culture, in schools now, with critical race theory, is systemic racism, white privilege, all these things that are not real things. 
That is what it's being emphasized. And as long as that continues to be emphasized, not only are we not going to make progress, it's actually going to make things worse for everyone, including black students. And I would argue that that's also by design coming from the very people that claim that they are trying to stand with the black community. That would be the Democrats. This is all by design. It's all on purpose. They haven't changed from what they were from the very beginning. Democrats haven't changed from what they were back in the Civil War days when they were the ones promoting slavery and promoting black inferiority. All they've done is dress up their language, change their appearance, and basically play the role of the, the one that's trying to save the day, in other words. And nothing could be further from the truth. So, Josh McDowell was not being racist, and that's what makes his apology so sickening. And on top of that, his apology isn't even genuine, I don't think. You know how I, you know how I know? I mean, listen to this. Tell me, the, I mean, think of all the times recently that you've heard people make these forced apologies. And tell me that it doesn't sound exactly like this. At a recent conference, I made comments about race, the black family, and minorities that were wrong. They weren't. And hurt many people. It breaks my heart to know the deep pain I have caused. He didn't cause any pain. Most people probably don't even, most people outside of Christian circles probably don't even know who Josh McDowell is. And yet he's caused deep pain. It has become clear to me, along with crew leadership, that I need to step back from my ministry. There's the key right there. Why is he making this apology? His leadership said, Oh no, we, we, we can't. That, that, that's controversial. You, you can't say that. You need to step away. This apology isn't genuine. And that's why he shouldn't make the apology. When they said that, when they told him he needed to step away, he said, no, I'm not apologizing for this because what I said was true. If anything, he should expound upon and do a, and do a whole video or, or speech or whatever where he brings out all the facts that led to his conclusion about what he originally said. That's what he should do. Because factually speaking, as the Coleman report that I just shared part of that, the news report that was tied to that, as that demonstrated, he wasn't wrong. But because he's being pressured, he felt the need to make this 
quote-unquote apology, step away, and he's going to step away from speaking engagements. And this, that's a problem too. Because Josh McDowell, despite my being ticked off at him right now, is one of the greatest apologists that are currently alive for Christianity. One of the greatest apologists for explaining the reasons for our faith. Some of the, book, the books that he's written on the evidence for Christianity are some of the best books that I have ever read on the defenses for the faith and the validity and reality of not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the New Testament documents. I've I really don't know of anybody that's alive today that has done a better job of defending the, histor the historicity and the validity of the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament than Josh McDowell. And he is going to allow true leadership and social pressure from whoever to... To, 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 use a, to use a football term, to bench him, to put him on the bench and to take him out of the game at a time when we are, there's great spiritual warfare going on in our country. The culture war is actually just a continuation of the spiritual war that Ephesians 6 talks about and that's been going on forever. And the only hope America has is Jesus Christ. And we're taking one of our greatest players, if you will, out of the game because of some fake, phony outrage over a supposed racist comment that was not even anywhere close to racist. And this is the problem I... I, I got, I'm going to try to be careful here, but... Any time a church or a pastor, a leader of any kind, a church leader, Christian leader, does any kind of bowing the knee, um, symbolically speaking, or giving any sort of credence whatsoever To these falsehoods and this this ideology and all all the stuff that drives all this BLM stuff and the and the critical race theory stuff and 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 the George Floyd incident was tied into this and the response to that was also tied into well well we have to bend over backwards and go out of our and look what happened to George Floyd was wrong okay it was wrong it was it was terrible and. The officer who did it was punished. I don't, and he, he's in jail right now. He's getting justice. All right? But this, this need for Christian leaders to bend over backwards to demonstrate to people, to, to a, no, not to people, to an ideology that will never be satisfied. That will, how, how much apologizing, how much, how many demonstrations of 
hey, look, I'm not racist. Look how much I'm willing to give up. I'm willing to give up my ministry. I'm willing to give, I'm willing to, to put a pause on the call of God for my life to show you that I'm not racist. How much of that, does anybody really believe we're going to come to a point where all the people that think, or, or at least are claiming that this is racist, at what point do you think, just, just imagine this with me, at what point is, there, is everybody going to go, hey, you know what, you're right, you're not racist, uh, or you, you've sufficiently proven to us that you're not a white supremacist, or you're not racist, or you don't hold any inferior, inferior ideas about black folks or other minorities. At what point can we do enough groveling, apologizing for things that people alive today had nothing to do with? At what point Is that at what point will the, will the people who are so outraged and offended by this? At what point are they going to go? Okay, you know what? You're right, and uh, we're letting you off the hook now. That's never going to happen because of these groups, the the BLM. Folks, the, the critical race theory folks, and everybody on the, le on the left, the political left, and the religious left that uses this to gain power and influence our culture, they will never let this go because without this, they don't have any power or influence. They use this as a club to beat down people who, I mean, let's be honest, nobody likes to be called racist, especially when you aren't. <laughs> Nobody wants to be disliked and thought of to be something they're not. Believe me, I know. It sucks to when people think, think things about you and say things about you that aren't true. It's terrible. And nobody wants to feel that. So naturally, people are going to go, look, I'm not, I'm not. And you go out of your way to try to prove it. And you know what I've learned from personal experience? You can never, ever do enough to prove to some, to prove you're something you're not to someone that desperately chooses to believe that you are. So it is useless and pointless to try, and in fact, it's detrimental to your own well-being and your own progress if you do try to prove it. During this time, meeting with others, and then he says, no, let me go back here, he says, um, hang on, blah, 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 blah. He's entering a season of listening and addressing the growth areas that I have become aware of through this. You mean to tell me in three days he went, he did a complete 180 from this statement to, oh, wow, I've got so many growth areas that I need. To, give me a break. Really? Three days? And he goes, well, gosh, you know, I didn't realize all this, this hidden racism I had in my heart until the crew leadership and a bunch of people on Twitter told me that I did. And you know what? They're right. Give me a break. Really? 
Does anybody really believe this? Come on. Wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Somebody, if you really believe this, come on. Really? <laughs> Give me a break. During this time of meeting with others and, and learning, I hope to personally grow and better understand how I can help contribute to the reconciliation and unity that God desires for us all. Does God, de does God desire unity? Yes. But does he desire unity at all costs? No. Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring... Well, let me put this in context. Because if I, if I, if I just say this quote, people are going to take it out of context. In the book of Acts, the church was united. The church was one. It says that in the early chapters of Acts. And that's when they were at their most effective. So does Jesus want the church to be unified? Absolutely. And that's one of the greatest problems that we have, whether racially, whether theologically, whether denominationally, whatever. We have so many problems with unity in the church because we're not on, we're not, we're not on the same page. We can't even agree on some of the most basic, fundamental, foundational doctrines of our faith. But, Jesus did not promote unity at all costs. And yes, Jesus also said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he said, you know, and it says in Isaiah 9, it prophesies, he will be called the Prince of Peace. God desires peace. God wants peace, but not peace at all costs. You don't pursue peace to the... You don't surrender truth to gain peace. And if you have to choose between one or the other, Jesus was very clear about which one we should choose. Matthew 10, 34 34-39. I'm reading from, God, from God's Word translation. It says, Don't think that I... This is Jesus. Don't think that I came to bring peace to earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but conflict. I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be the members of his own family. And then he says, The person who loves his father or mother more than me does not deserve to be my disciple. This is still Jesus talking. The person who loves a son or daughter more than me does not deserve to be my disciple. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me doesn't deserve to be my disciple. The one who tries to preserve his life will lose it, but the person who loses his life for me will preserve it. And here's the same account again. This time from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Again, reading from God's Word translation. He says, Do you think that I came to bring peace to earth? No. I can guarantee that I came to bring nothing but division. From now on, a family of five will be divided. Three will be divided against two and two against three. A father will be against his own son and a son against his father. 
A mother will be against her daughter and a daughter against her mother. A mother-in-law will be against her daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Same thing. Jesus desires peace and unity among his people, but it's unity based around him. The people who name the name of Jesus and the people who claim to be believers, who, who love Jesus and seek to follow him, need to be unified. We need to love one another. We need to be one with each other because it's in our unity. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. That is, that's where the power is. But when we let these false ideas and this false need to prove that we're not something that we're being called, and even worse, when that is permitted to stop someone, someone great, from fulfilling the call that God has put on that person's life, then, my friends, the devil has essentially, Josh McDowell essentially just handed the devil a victory. Oh, no, they think I'm racist because of a comment I made that wasn't racist. Let me stop what I'm doing for God's kingdom and get out of the way. That's literally what Josh McDowell just did. And that's why his apology bugs me so much. I'm not even getting to the point with you know, the, the people on Twitter that call me racist. Because this, this really isn't about me. I, I started this off. I was going to go to Twitter and I was going to read all the comments and what, what, what I said and then what other people said. I'm not even going to do that because this isn't about me. And this really, to be, to be totally blunt, isn't even about Josh McDowell. This is about a servant of God who does so many, has done and is continuing to do such great work for the kingdom of God, bringing so many people the truth to, to a dark world. He's such a light in a dark world that desperately needs it. Hi, Galaxy. He's such a light in a dark world that desperately needs it. And he's just handed all that over, whether temporarily or long term, I don't know, but he has handed this over to all because the crew leadership and in in some people on Twitter or Facebook or social media have said you can't say that, really. That's what we're doing now. That, that's what we're doing now. It is no wonder the church is in the shape that it's in that not even 10% of Americans, I think the last count was 6% of Americans, have a biblical worldview. 6%. What are we doing, guys? What are we doing?
Are we here to serve Jesus? Or are we here to try to, or are we here to walk on eggshells to prove that we're not something that people, some people say we are? Because if that's what, if this is going to sideline you or anybody you know, if you're going to blink when you're accused of this, or if you're going to go out of your way to not say something because I don't want anybody to say this or think that, then my friend, you're, you're, you've already lost. You've lost before you've ever started. And so I'm not even going to bother reading the, the Twitter thing. I'll, I'll mention there was, this, there was this one reply that I got. Basically, I said, uh, my tweet basically was something to the effect of, another Christian bows the knee to something other than Jesus. And one of the replies I just remember off the top of my head said, Jesus would never offend anyone. And my response to that was, you're right. They, they kill, you're right, Jesus would never offend anyone. The people that killed him only did so because he made them smile so much that their faces hurt and they needed it to stop. Jesus would never offend anyone? Give me a break. Jesus looked at a crowd one time and said, you are of your father the devil. He made statements like this about dividing people's families over what they thought about him. He called another woman who wasn't an Israelite, basically called her a dog. He did. Jesus would never offend anyone. Jesus was all about love, but he and he wasn't trying to offend people. It's not like he saw he was he's not some shock jock out here on the microphone trying to say things to offend people. That's not what I'm saying either. It, Jesus' ministry was not one, let me see how many people I can offend. That's not what he did either. That wasn't his goal or his ministry. But in him naturally being who he is, the Son of God, God in the flesh on earth, in him just going about doing good and doing what his father sent him to do just by being himself naturally. He offended people. That's what, that's what Josh McDowell, he wasn't trying to offend anybody with this. He was just stating what he felt from his heart. And by the way, it's true. Everything he, every word he said was true. Just in him naturally being himself, he offended people. So don't sit here, whoever sent me that on Twitter, I don't even remember now. Don't sit here and tell me Jesus would never offend anybody. Jesus very claims about who he was, the Son of God, and who he is. He called himself the I Am. He made himself equal with God because he is equal with God. He and the Father are one.
That was the that was literally the most offensive thing he could say in his day to the people that were against him the most. It was true, and that's why he said it. He didn't say it to offend. He said it because it was true, and he is the truth. But trying to tell me Jesus never did anything, said anything that would offend anybody? Jesus was the most offensive person ever. And thank God he was. And when he comes back in his second coming, you want to talk about offensive, the first thing he does coming down out of heaven, it, the, the war of Armageddon's going on, and he, there are, all the armies of the world are coming against Israel and coming against him to try to destroy him. He speaks a word, and all of his enemies drop dead. That's what's going to happen in the future. He's not going to come down out of heaven and go, Gee, guys, I sure hope you guys don't think the wrong thing about me. What can I do to show you that I'm not the hateful person you think I am? What can I do to show you that I'm not narrow-minded? No, he's coming back as a conquering king. Not a submissive... Hmm. <laughs> Not a submissive coward. This has been Steve Johnson for the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. You can reach me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. I would love your comments and feedback on this. Do you agree with me? Do you think I'm wrong? Do you think the people on Twitter were right <laughs> about me or about Josh McDowell? Uh, should Josh have apologized or not? What, what do you think, guys? I would love to hear your thoughts. I don't dislike Josh McDowell anymore. I still think he's a great... Servant of God. I just hope he realizes that the true error of his ways was not what he said, but the fact that he apologized for it. See you guys next time.